welcome to Rules of the Frame. My name is Connor Reed. And my name is Riley Hardy. Yeah, and today we have a special guest with us, a Mr. Steve Snedeker. Hey, how are you guys doing? Doing good, doing good. So We've been anticipating this for a long time. Yes. We're excited about Blade Runner and excited to talk about it with Steve. Right. It's one of, one of uh, whenever I think of Blade Runner, I do think of Steve often because <laughs> I know... He's a big fan of it. So well, we're actually sitting here in my office looking at a at giant <laughs> uh, Blade Runner poster on the wall. Yes. So yeah, it doesn't get any better than this. Mm-mm, mm-mm. So Sned was my uh, cinema professor. His official title is Associate Professor of Visual Arts at John Brown University. So he was the one who taught me all I know. <laughs> well, I got fun. you started I, on learning. You actually, got me started. Yeah. Been, yeah. <laughs> I've known Steve for a long time. Actually, I I first knew Steve as. The magic man because he would come to my my dad's coffee shop and he would do magic shows so that was that was my first introduction <laughs> okay so riley think of a number no sorry <laughs> <laughs> oh man good times you remember that uh, little spring action raccoon that you would like shoot into the audience rocky raccoon i still have him and i take him out at uh, bible study sometimes uh and freak out the students so yes <laughs> oh man fun shall i get into the summary and then we yeah. can get going let's cool. do it so we're talking Blade Runner, 1982. Mm-hmm. The um, final cut. The final cut is, yeah. The year's 2019 in Los Angeles. Uh, we see former police officer Rick Deckard, and he's detained by an officer, Gaff, brought to his former supervisor, Chief Bryant. And there we learn that Deckard was a Blade Runner, which is someone who hunts and kills bioengineered beings known as replicants. Uh, Deckard is informed that four are currently on Earth illegally, illegally. The chief wants Deckard to hunt down all known replicants, uh, Leon, Roy Batty, Zora, and Pris. Uh, the chief has Deckard meet with Eldon Tyrell so he can administer the Voight-Kampff test, which is a verbal test designed to elicit an emotional response uh, on a Nexus 6, which is an advanced model replicant, uh, just to see if it works. So Tyrell wants to see the test fail first, and he asked him to test Rachel, his assistant. Um, after a much longer than standard test, Deckard concludes that Rachel is a replicant who believes she is human, which Tyrell confirms. The replicants Roy and Leon are investigating a replicant eye manufacturer, which leads them to a J.F. Sebastian, a genetic designer with whom replicant Pris had already discovered and was staying with at the moment. Uh, And then meanwhile, Deckard returns to his apartment where Rachel is waiting, and she tries to prove that she's not a replicant by showing him a family photo, but Deckard dismisses them as implanted memories, which upsets Rachel and she leaves. Uh, from there, a photograph from Leon's apartment and the snake scale, which he found, lead Deckard to a strip club where Zora works. Uh, and after a confrontation, Deckard chases and kills Zora. Bryant orders him also to, re- to kill, and he, they use the language retire, which is another way of saying kill mm-hmm. uh, for the replicants. So... He orders him to retire Rachel, who has disappeared from the Terrell Corporation. And after Deckard spots Rachel in a crowd, he's attacked by Leon. But Rachel uses Deckard's pistol to kill Leon. And then they go back to Deckard's apartment, where Deckard promises not to kill her. At Sebastian's apartment, Roy tells Pris that the others are dead. But uh, Sebastian sympathizes with them because he has something called Methuselah Syndrome, which is a genetic premature aging disorder. Um, and so his life is also going to be really short. And Sebastian leads Roy to Tyrell's office, where Roy demands an extension of his four-year lifespan, which Tyrell tells him that's impossible, but he praises Roy for his accomplishments during his short life. 
and then Roy ends up killing Tyrell right then and there. And at Sebastian's apartment, Deckard is ambushed by Pris, but he manages to kill her. Roy, whose body begins to fail as the end of his lifespan is coming close, he confronts Deckard, and their chase leads to the rooftop of the apartment building. Deckard tries to jump to an adjacent roof, but is left hanging between the rooftops. And Roy jumps across easily and saves Deckard from falling at the last minute. And before Roy dies, he gives a monologue about how all of his memories are going to be lost in time, like tears and rain. Then Officer Gaff arrives and shouts to Deckard, It's too bad she won't live, but then again, who does? Deckard returns to his apartment, uh, with which he finds Rachel asleep in his bed. And as they leave, Deckard notices an origami unicorn on the floor, which is a calling card that recalls for him Gaff's earlier statement. Deckard and Rachel leave the apartment block. And then depending on which version you're watching, we get a different ending. But final cut, it just ends right there. Yes. So, and that's the movie in yeah. that show. Which if you haven't but watched the final cut, that's the one you should watch. That's the one you should... Well, it's all I've seen, but uh, right. from what I've heard, that's the... Definitive. It's the 100% director was in control cut of the film. So, mm-hmm. And we'll get into all that. Scott approved. That's right. But my two words for this movie were manufactured humanity. Mm. Because... Uh, a big theme in this movie is humanity. What does it mean to be human? Mm. And as they create replicants in order to further establish their humanity, you know, they implant memories. And so they're, it's a process of, uh, of making them more human. And so manufactured humanity was a little phrase I came up with. Mm. Nice. Uh, so that was mine. Ooh, that's good. Uh, mine was um, searching purpose. That just uh, seems to me to be what all of the characters are kind of doing, whether willing or knowing or unknowing, where Roy's character is very much, you know, what is he doing here? Why, if he is created, then, and it has a purpose, then why is he given such a short lifespan and and then decorate of just kind of like this confrontation that he's having with himself and that other characters introduce to him and like bringing up these little elements to him. And so I feel like that was just kind of like the underlying backbone of a lot of these characters is like, what is their purpose in this world that that's so desolate and how can they make an impact or live the best life that they can? And so you're going to make me do two words now. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's nigh impossible. Uh, I thought about a couple of them. Here's the most profound one. Blade Runner. Blade Runner is Blade Runner, but that doesn't really work. Um, Let's do this. And then we can talk about this later. Ridley Scott. Hmm. Huh. Good description. Okay. Yeah, yeah and good. it's just because it is Ridley Scott's masterpiece. I mean, I like a lot of Ridley Scott, but I always come back to this one as the one that uh, that I fell in love with uh, the the uh, the art of cinema through uh, Ridley Scott's eyes. Well, I'm assuming you saw this in theaters. Uh, the truth is, no, I didn't. Uh, a little really? background on this: uh, I became a Christian in 1980. And during that uh, kind of that early honeymoon period as a new believer, I was uh, throwing away old Beatles albums and kind of being, uh, uh, I was kind of uh, intentionally shunning the theater uh, in part because I was commanded to, cordially commanded to as a student at Moody Bible Institute. Um, So I did not see the movie when it was released in the theaters, but I do remember the first time I saw it. And it was uh, on a VHS copy uh, that was uh, 
being played at my father's house, my, my folks' house, uh, down in the basement on a TV, and all I could do was just be mesmerized by the Vangelis soundtrack mm. and the, the mm. space, uh, you know, the, the scenes of the, the spinners flying through the uh, Los yeah. Angeles skyline. And so I watched the entire film there, and it was the theatrical release. So I, my first, uh, my first experience with Blade Runner was with the uh, voiceover uh, noir narration that uh, that uh, Harrison Ford was kind of conscripted to do. Um, so that that was my earliest memories of it. Very interesting. How, so did you see the final cut like basically as soon as it was released then, or? Well, a while after. So then the next contact with it was at a rental store in Salem Springs where I rented the director's cut. And the director's cut was supposedly Ridley's, you know, what Ridley really wanted to do. Um, now, the differences are interesting. There's actually five available cuts of the film. And I have a couple of uh, versions or a couple of uh, issues of that, a, a, a Blu-ray and a DVD issue. The work print was essentially what they screened uh, for a test print, as well as some early screenings that were done at festivals in Los Angeles. And then the theatrical, the U.S. theatrical release with the noir uh, narration, um, that was 1982. There was an international release, which was about 15 seconds longer, that included uh, a little more gore around the uh, killing of Terrell. Uh, so you saw the blood spurting out of his eyes as uh, Batty crushes his skull. Um, this is. Uh, we should have probably given a warning to uh, to younger <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I think there was also some additional uh, uh, um, violence that was during the Pris uh, scene where they uh, where she and he grabs uh, his nostrils. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yes, uh, the final cut when that was released, I was such a nerd about the movie that I uh, I asked for uh, the entire uh, special edition, l limited edition collection um, for Christmas. And that included, uh, in 2007, that included the 25th anniversary final cut, which was Ridley's chance to go back and not only do the cut that he wanted, which included the truncated ending, the uh, elevator doors closing and roll credits. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, uh, of course, they repaired a couple of things that were problematic from the film that people had always kind of said, hey, I can see the wires on the spinner and, and uh, Joanna the Cassidy's. The yeah. yeah. When the dog Yeah, the, the ending shot, yes, mm -hmm. was definitely a kind of a buzzkill. Voices not matching. Yeah, there was there yeah. were some lips lip sync issues. And then there was also Joanna Cassidy's stunt uh, gal as she crashes through the glass. This is the Zora character. As she mm -hmm. crashes through the glass, um, clearly it's a stunt woman wearing a very bad wig. <laughs> And so it's fascinating uh, to watch how they went in and with taste. You know, they weren't trying to change what they did. They were just trying to to, to really make it uh, perfect, if that's a, you know, yeah. final, mm -hmm. I guess, put the, put it to bed forever. Mm -hmm. They didn't George Lucas it. They didn't George Lucas it. <laughs> so that's 25 right. years removed from the original film. Um, they did not go in and change the analog uh, matte uh, photography that was done, the the old school uh, yeah. stuff. There mm -hmm. there wasn't CGI present in this movie. It really is the last of the greatest of the great sci-fi films that were done in the in the very classic multiple pass motion control uh, matte photography uh, process. And um, yeah, I, you you watched Dangerous Days, right? I did. Both yes. of you saw that. So that the mm -hmm. interesting discussion about how they made it go from cheese, the, the very bad chroma key of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is just a horrendous <laughs> chroma key, 
uh, with uh, by adding LEDs to the models and doing a pass and getting a lens flare. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you know, J.J. Abrams has relevance to the modern world. <laughs> you know? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it really is spectacular just what we, they did and just how I feel like uh, this was just such an inspirational film just because there is such a, like, a fingerprint of Ridley Scott in it. Like, you can tell just the control he had and the fight that he had for it and just, like, how it is very much his type of film. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really incredible. And uh, to me, whenever I watched it, that was kind of one of the first instances I noticed of, like, auteurship in a film. I was like, yeah, that is yeah. very much, you know, his style. Because mm-hmm. I had seen a- I think I'd seen Alien before I saw Blade Runner, and I even saw just kind of like architecturally, and his vision of the future matches very well with Blade Runner. It's not the same world, but you can tell there's just kind of that used, lived-in, grimy, gritty, mm-hmm. beautiful essence to it. Not to mention like all of the strobe lights and very dramatic lighting mm-hmm. as well. And so it's interesting that Scott is uh, he he does a really good job of picking great collaborators to be part of his art. I mean, he's mm. in and of himself, he's a fantastic filmmaker, quite capable of shooting, quite capable of doing all the storyboarding, writing. I mean, he's, he's an all-around artist in the film world. But uh, he also partners with some great people to help him realize his dreams. So in Alien, it was uh, the Geiger um, mm. uh, artwork. And then uh, in Blade Runner, it was the futurist Sid Mead that he came alongside and said, you know, can you right. kind of give me some concept drawings? And and that just that made the movie it had its own mm-hmm. look and signature and i mean thankfully los angeles doesn't look like <laughs> the blade runner of 2019 in the film today mm-hmm. uh, although yeah. it's been raining almost uh, the entire uh, month of february <laughs> yeah. and and like less than 70 degrees in los angeles so maybe maybe the times are changing but, mm. yeah. but yeah it's yeah. and i mean jordan cronenweth's amazing photography yeah. Or, mm-hmm. yeah in this is just fantastic and This was kind of one of the films where when I watched it, I was thinking, you know, okay, how much of the beauty and just awestruck nature of every frame in there, how much of that is Scott and how much of it is Jordan Cronenweth or Douglas Trumbull, the special effects Mm -hmm. guru on it? Yeah, those are always questions I ask because there's so many people, you know, responsible for how the movie looks. It's like, who do I attribute to what? For cinematography, for me, I usually jump, okay, the scene is lit really well, so that's the cinematographer. Mm. Man, I, this movie is probably one of my favorite examples of really good cinematography. I, mm. I love the scene. It's such a simple scene, but when uh, Bryant and Deckard are, or when Bryant is briefing Deckard on the replicants, mm. and they're just the scene is lit in this blue light, just flooding the room, and and then as they're smoking, the smoke just billows up, and the smoke kind of becomes a light source in and of itself too. And so I watched this on 4K Blu-ray. I have the 4K edition of it in HDR. All right, you win officially. You win <laughs> <laughs> on my 65-inch TV. Yeah. Oh gosh, you're killing me. <laughs> that was great. Oh, he great loves experience. bringing up his system. <laughs> I love, <laughs> love bringing up my setup. But yeah, it was gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. And so that was a standout scene for me. And then just the neon in this movie. Mm-hmm. Neon really pops mm-hmm. with that HDR. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's so, yeah, so beautiful. And just the, you know, there's light is always moving in all of the mm-hmm. shots, mm-hmm. whether it be, you know, the, the kind of the, it's 
as if the water like water is producing light like mm-hmm. a shimmering effect mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then also just spotlights that are turning and right. crossing into the character's field of view i just love all of it it is fantastic and i think one thing that i really love about it too is especially the use of neon i feel mm-hmm. is like a character in an in itself mm-hmm. and yeah. kind of a symbol of what humanity is where it's like this is the only light that we have anymore and the only color in mm. this barren world is this really fake, too bright <laughs> light that is just illuminating everything, but it's almost obnoxious in a way, but it's also beautiful, yeah. but it's so unnatural. And I think it's just a beautiful statement of what the time is yeah. then. Well, it's interesting because the film overall, the production design of the film is a de- sort of a decrepitude that it's, if you're familiar with Terry Gilliam's Brazil, mm. you know he leverages the idea of using old gadgets repurposed to try to make them modern gadgets, but they're almost more unwieldy and and unuseful. Um, but Blade Runner is obviously a future society that's tried to push forward, but because of what uh, the original story referred to as World War Terminus, uh, there's it's, the world is basically coming to an end on Earth. And so it really is everything's going to hell in a handbasket, pardon my French. It, <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it is a mess, and the neon almost appears like a, a Band-Aid or a way to say, oh, it's okay. You know? mm-hmm. And then there's that wonderful balloon that comes floating through or whatever that, that little ship is. That, yeah. You know, yeah. A new world awaits you. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you have this sense of advertising is still happening. The Coca-Cola, the Fox Studios, the Atari. Atari. Yep. Yeah, it's all... It's all there, um, but who would want to be? Who'd want to stick around and buy that stuff? Because right. it's it's a mess. <laughs> the place is a mess. Mm-hmm. I love it because just the scene where he's getting noodles in the beginning, and like the character's introduction, it's just like it's pouring down rain, and it's. But why are all these people there? Why are they participating in this market? It's like mm. I would be inside. Like I'd yeah. be out in that weather, but it's just so much part of. LA at that time it's yeah like, if you don't go out now I mean you, you'll always be inside mm-hmm. so that's just interesting yeah and it's crazy because the you know the technology has gotten better but society as a whole has been going down yeah. so it's yeah. an interesting kind of widening of these two things and uh, it's just an interesting contrast yeah mm-hmm. or even just the limited access of it where there is all this fantastic thing like the spinners or just like all of the different gadgets yeah. and all that where it's there but no one has it except if you're like government employed or super rich. And like, otherwise you're just in the streets walking around, riding a bike, you know, and scrummy clothing and, and scavenging the, yeah. the kids that jump up yep. on top of his spinner at that one point and steal one of the air conditioning units off. You know, it's like they've got nothing better to do, but to be little thieves, little, little, uh, I was going to say Oliver twist, you know, their <laughs> little uh, pickpockets on yeah. the street. Yeah. Right. Artful Dodgers. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> It's just a weird world because in some parts I'm like, wow, it looks so cool. Like, I want to live in this. But other parts I'm like, well, <laughs> it's actually pretty miserable. And, you know, it seems like everyone's kind of like sick. There's acid rain all the time. No one sees the sky. Yeah. And no one, there's no animals, like real animals. And everything is just so processed and produced. What's the real animals is part of this is really a big part of the original story. And it's, yeah. it's just very much a subtextual thing in the, in the film. The owl that appears when Rachel is introduced at the Terrell Corporation, and then the owl comes back up again uh, later on in uh, in Terrell's apartment. Um, the owl has the glowing eyes, and there was a couple of back and forths about whether or not they should 
say the owl is real or the owl is a, a replicant or a, a, a an android. Um, well, android's the wrong thing. That's a human form, but a, but a, <laughs> well, a, a fake animal. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the book, uh, the original book, really is all about with a title like "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep?" the the uh, the idea that in their world most of the animals had died, and to have a real animal is is an, a luxury beyond luxuries. It's like having for us. I'll speak for myself. Uh, having a fancy uh, Lamborghini sports car or something that just is ridiculously yep. priced, and and even you, you wouldn't drive it because you wouldn't want it to get hurt. You know, it's just like keep it in your garage, mm-hmm. shine it up on Sundays, <laughs> put it back in your garage. Um, it was that sort of luxury, and 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 I think I, although there were ostriches in the uh, street scene, mm-hmm. there were right, animals yeah. that occurred in various right. places. Uh, it wasn't the primary. Uh, really the setup for the story, which is how the book opens. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And even just like the slight comments in there of like Zora with the snake and mm-hmm. he's like, is that real? And, you know, you think I'd be working here if right. I could afford a real snake? Yeah, I forgot about that. That, that uh, Absolutely. Right. That's a that's a great, uh, a great connection to the, yeah. uh, the idea that animals are gone or very rare, very yeah. expensive. Well, and they, because they, they look at the serial number on the, the on snake the, scale. On the scale. So yeah. it's kind of another, it's, it moves them forward through the plot, so it does show up in that form. Mm-hmm. Which always made me question: It's like, so what are they eating then? Because it seems like, well, all of the electric animals are really expensive. That's a good point. So I've what are they about eating? Food. <laughs> well, noodles. so they're eating noodles. Yeah, they're eating algae uh, uh, proteins, which uh, is then further explained in the uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which right. I know is kind of we're truncating that, not going to that <laughs> yeah. one, but. But the protein worm farms uh, become uh, one of the ways that uh, that that story is actually pushed forward. Yeah, I mean it is a pretty dismal place, but I don't know. There's it seems like there's also so much opportunity there. Like there's it seems like the only people that are really happy are the ones that are working for Tyrell, like creating these replicants. Like they seem really fascinated with their work and kind of the most jovial. Even if you only see it for a second, they're the only ones. They're doing that because maybe it's because they have like the most purpose or mm. saying like I'm creating life right now and just kind of mm. playing God in that sense. Well, we meet two of them in the story. Mm-hmm. We meet the guy that does the eyes. Yeah. Uh, and and Chew. he yeah. he felt to me like a prisoner. I mean, mm-hmm. clearly he was in a, a suit that was being heated and in a freezing cold environment. Um, he he didn't really. I'm, I'm kind of pushing back at you a little bit there, Connor, but um, I would I wouldn't say that his was a happy life. Um, he was it, he, it was fun for him to see or to take credit for the eyes that were in Roy Batty and that wonderful line. If you could see what your oh, yeah. eyes have seen, um, if I if you could see what I've seen with your eyes is what yeah, the line yeah, is. Yeah. Um, just you know, I thought that was just a, so profound and amazing. And then we also meet uh, J.F. Sebastian, mm-hmm. and he's, uh, of course, got the Methuselah syndrome. He's he's really only really happy in his own little environment with his little funny little toys. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, I, I it's a dire place. Yeah, I, I'm glad it's not. Mm-hmm. We don't live in Los Angeles, 2019 of Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That character is quite different from the novel. I think the character John Isidore was his yeah, name. J- yeah. In the book, and he's they call them chicken heads because the radiation from World War Terminus has affected their brain and yeah. made them that way. Mm-hmm. But you know, this this is a very loose adaptation. Yeah, it's very not. It's not. They 
they just they could kind of pick and choose certain aspects, like the names, obviously. Um, but yeah, it is very different overall. Well, Deckard's uh, married in the in the novel, yeah. Right. Uh, married, yeah, and that's kind of an unhappy uh, relationship or a tolerating each other relationship, right? Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, there clearly is a a different uh, kind of a different vibe. But I think there's some strong sociological and uh, and well theological, if you want. Mm-hmm. Things that are expressed by Philip K. Dick. If you if you've done any study of Philip K. Dick, he was a very uh, troubled and manic sort of person who had a deep mm-hmm. religious faith, uh, maybe even almost like a uh, uh, alien yeah. uh, invasion sort of faith. I mean, it's not quite L. Ron Hubbard weird, but yeah. um, but you know, close to that. And and he wrote just tons of science fiction that has been rendered as films. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the titles have changed, so the the do androids, androids dream of electric sheep eventually became Blade Runner through yeah. a series of, mm-hmm. uh, of uh, revisions. There's, uh, of course, there's... The Scanner there's, Darkly? Scanner Darkly. Yeah, Scanner Darkly. Mm-hmm. There's the uh, um, Total Recall, which yeah. was, um, we can recall, it, or we can we can store it for you wholesale or something yeah. like that. Yeah, um, Minority Report. Minority Report, the Adjustment Bureau. That's right. The, uh, I think the... Man in the High Castle? Man yeah. in the High that's Castle, a, indeed. TV show. Yep. Yeah. So he he was a brilliant writer and a, and really in many ways a futurist looking at societal uh, things. Uh, writing during the Vietnam War, uh, this is when uh, the original Andro- "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep" was written. Um, it was pretty much an anti-establishment uh, statement. And now you know today, of course, looking at Blade Runner, it's strangely uh, apropos with the idea of robots and AI, and you hear reports every day of a person that's crushed by a robot and robots making decisions that could potentially fire humans or terminate humans, and uh, it's it's awful close. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a weird world we're living in where there's all of these, you know, classic sci-fi stuff where people, like whenever it came out, are like, oh, this is so far-fetched, and seeing a lot of it come to fruition Mm -hmm. is a very strange and, weird mindset to be in and whenever people are making this sort of stuff it's like oh i hope they've seen terminator oh i hope they've seen blade runner and like all these things it's like almost like warning signs you know or like you know it's like yeah we view it as entertainment but keep in mind you know the humanity of it all and like the real issues that it's dealing with to make sure that we don't fall down that path like to me one of the most striking sci-fi films i've seen in recent years was her mm-hmm. uh, which i love that movie i think mm-hmm. it's an amazing look mm-hmm. at the future and very very real like hits very close to home and it's subtle sci-fi just you know set in barely in the future where it's not so far into the future that you're like oh this is way out of line but there's just enough there where you can see it's kind of like a different world you're living in and it's like almost like a utopia and just mm-hmm. The dependence on technology is a thing where I'm like, yeah, I see this, you know, this is happening. And viewing it as like a warning sign, but also um, just kind of a beautiful look into the future as it's well. Always a, it's always a mark of good sci-fi that it that it has relevance that's far beyond the uh, the technological uh, gadgetry, the, the coolness of what's produced. Which was one of my beefs. I know we're switching movies. I'm switching movies. But uh, Ready Player One, I just was like... Bummer. I just walked away. I just went, I'm yeah. sorry. Even with the homage to uh, The Shining in it and yeah. some of that stuff, I was just, there's just, I'm lost in 
in the gl- the glamour and glitz of the CGI, and I, what I really want is a story that compels me. Mm-hmm. Which, mm-hmm. coming back to Blade Runner, always does that. It always it always causes me to think about what it means to be human, right. and and how I should be as a person uh, toward other people. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. which yeah. I I'd, I'd love to hear your take on this, but my my opinion of Blade Runner is that. If you watch it, you need to watch it three times. Mm. So the first time, watch it to get the story. Mm-hmm. Second time, watch it for the visuals. And then third time, watch it for like the more philosophical and kind of just like the hidden themes throughout. Mm. Well, I would only tweak that and say you need to watch it 300 times. <laughs> and my wife would be able to verify that because I have watched it way too many times. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think it's multi-layered, which is a sign of a good piece of cinematic art that it's it bears repeated watchings it uh, it actually uh, becomes more nuanced and and there's a deeper sense of what's going on there as a result of seeing it a second third however many times mm-hmm. what i love about it is that it this movie gives you a lot of space to think it's very atmospheric and part of i think the vangelis score does that really well you're just able and that's I think it's been a criticism of this movie is that some thought it was a little too slow, that it wasn't super focused. But I think the way that um, they they give you time and space to think mm. and to take everything in, at least in the final cut where there's no voiceover, because from the clips I've seen with the voiceover, it just cuts in and it like interrupts my train of thought. It's like, I'm enjoying this moment here. Why is Harrison Ford starting to talk? Yeah, which that was uh, I watched the theatrical cut a couple of days ago, and that was my biggest beef with it. Not just that, like the the dialogue was cheesy, but I was like I couldn't focus on what was happening mm-hmm. because it would cut in, and I was like, oh, something really important visually is happening mm-hmm. that adds a lot of depth to the scene and like a lot of depth to uh, Ford's performance in this, and it just completely gets glossed over with that stupid dialogue. So the you know the for everyone that's listening um, we're nerding out on this film and you, uh, the listeners <laughs> might not really understand the w- what we're talking about. Why did they do that? And essentially it was because the studio folks when they saw the film didn't get it. Uh, whether or not they weren't uh, willing to be smart enough to walk into the space and and be challenged by visuals and the atmospheric nature of it. Or they simply thought that uh, the audiences that were going to pay for tickets were stupid. Yeah, they were scared. Yeah, that nobody was going to get it. Yeah. And so they they literally they said uh, bring F- uh, Ford back in. We've got him still on contract. We have a, there's a clause that says we can you know bring him in to fix stuff and let's let's just throw this copy at him. And some of the copy actually existed in earlier versions of the scripts. Uh, so it was not it wasn't that it was foreign to the Blade Runner story. It just was something that that Scott. Uh, omitted, or like the the uh, great actor Gene Hackman, often it's said that Gene Hackman only really actually speaks half of the lines that are written for him. Hmm. The rest of the lines he acts. He actually just uses his body and physicality to communicate what the thought was in the line. And I think that's what Scott was trying to do. And the studio said, ah, no, 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 we're going to do this. And Ford came in, and I think he believed Scott's version more than, or Scott's vision more than he believed the studio's vision, but he did it. And it even it feels just half-hearted, even yeah. yeah. <laughs> it do, it doesn't seem like he cares when he's recording right. it. It's just, Although he I claims that he did the best he could, but yeah, I don't believe it. Which, well, <laughs> the only one that I kind of I kind of missed when I saw the uh, the uh, director's cut, um, the in-between director's cut, not the final cut, uh, after being f- 
oriented to the original theatrical release as my first experience with it, I kind of missed the uh, the last line where he says, "I sat there and watched him die," you know, throughout the night. There was kind of that moment where that one to me was sort of. I mean, it just, I, I felt sort of like I, I needed that. I, I, I didn't need the Sam Spade sort of uh, Humphrey Bogart noir sort of thing. You know, it's called Dark Night in Hell, and she comes into my office. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't really need that approach. But it, it I don't know, it just, I, I, th- that one I sort of missed. Yeah, that one is really good. But was that one in, because whenever I watched the theatrical one, the original theatrical, that the line there was like the, I don't know why he gave his life for me. Right. Maybe that, it was that, because he, yeah. which that one is not good. But um, I was watching the bonus features on it, and there's a whole 45 minute piece that has all of the alternate and deleted scenes, which has completely different voiceover right. dialogue. And that dialogue is amazing. Yeah. Like it was incredible, yeah. and I don't know why they didn't use that. Like I loved that. You know, city sat and watched him die all night. Like that was amazing. And even uh, the fake or the the ending that they had to add on with Deckard and Rachel driving away, the voiceover, and that was so much better. And the last line, yeah. I thought, was amazing, where they're talking about being in love with each other, and then Rachel turns over to him and just kind of casually says, I guess we were just made for each other. Yeah. And then that was like, oh, man. Like, And then Deckard kind of like looks forward, and there's like that whole like oh am i a replicant thing and i was right. like that was amazing which you know that's that's oh. that is a uh, a web uh that's a that's an endless hole to drop into when you start talking about is Deckard a, a replicant um <laughs> but you know we have to talk about it well i know but and maybe this is the segue into it um i've gone back and forth on it and i truthfully uh, heard a lot of people say that when they saw 2049 they were expecting the that to be answered and i think Masterfully, uh, Dennis Villeneuve did not. Uh, he did not answer the question. Mm-hmm. He re- he left it into in in, in uh, as something that the individual person viewing it. He was he respected the viewer with a. You think what you want. I'm not going to tell you what to think. But yeah, the the he, point where his eyes glow when this is in the of course the original film where mm-hmm. where he uh, steps into the light, his eyes glow like all the other replicants do and it's just i just get chills down my spine because mm-hmm. i'm going wow what is reality here mm-hmm. and what is yeah. human you know see my first right. reaction to that scene though was like okay was that intentional or was it because like it was an accident because they had like the whole you know the way they did it of like reflecting the light through a um what was it a half mirror or yeah. something yeah. and it was it just because like he looked exactly in the right direction and is that why but then as I was watching it again, you know, there are like more subtler, like smaller lights in his eyes. So, yeah, that is tricky. What's your like overall? Well, I think it kind of comes back to what were they talking about when that happened? And I'm I'm trying to uh, I'm, I'm actually opening up a screenplay here to see if I can come back back to it um, and pick that up. But there was, you know, what has happened just prior to that was he had um, he had killed Zora mm-hmm. And then he had spied Rachel, and then uh, Leon comes up to try to kill him, and uh, and then Rachel kills Leon, <laughs> and then they go back to the apartment, and he's of course he's all beat up uh, and and tending to himself. But I think it was in that that sequence 
where he uh, he comes in. Go, go on to something it's else. I'll, I'll find it. <laughs> Riley, what's, do you think he's a replicant or no? I don't know. I don't know if I've really tried to answer the question myself. I think, because what I come back to is I think the question is more powerful than the answer. And I I think, like you're saying, Steve, you know, Denis Villeneuve, or however you say his name, I think he respected the question because the question is more powerful. And, like, who cares about the answer? The question is there. Like, who cares about the answer, you know? And I thought that was a really cool way to think about it. But then you just, I don't know, I come back to that unicorn sequence, and I'm trying to interpret what does that mean (laughs) for me. Because there's, you know, you could think of it as, okay, this means those memories were implanted because Gaff knows, knows about the memory. Or it could be this is like the pursuit of a dream, that kind of thing. So there's different ways to look at it. Yeah, it goes even it goes even further in some of the speculation. They uh, some people say that Gaff is actually the real Blade Runner, and Deckard is just like uh, like his uh, his own uh, replicant that kind of serves his purposes. So Gaff is the one that's calling the shots. Um, interesting. Yeah, I, I Gaff is a mystery to me. Mm-hmm. He is yeah. such an interesting character. He's yeah. he's so strange. Like he almost just doesn't really fit in with the rest of the world because everyone else's garb is so like drab and like like either brown or black. And he's a dandy. Yeah, he has like the little bow ties <laughs> with like these polka dotted <laughs> right. vests and you know a you can fedora. Do fancy origami. Yeah, do origami, and he's just like. Everyone else is like so rushed and always moving very frantically, and he's very limited just because he has the cane. And so mm-hmm. everywhere he goes, he has mm-hmm. to, you know, just take his time with it. And yeah, he's right. he's kind of a strange character, and I I think he's a good misfit for the world because like the world is, just seems to be made of misfits. I'm okay with uh, I'm okay with Deckard not being uh, call, uh, you know found out as either yay or nay replicant. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. Oh, I me too. I, it's just I, I I'm okay with that. The ambivalence of it makes mm-hmm. it work for me. Yeah, which right. I I completely agree with you, Riley, in that it's like the question that's powerful, not the answer. Uh, mm-hmm. But in, <laughs> if you watch like some of the special features on it, there's one that's all about people discussing, you know, whether he's a replicant or not. And oh yeah, Ridley like, came out and said he's a replicant. Yeah, he's <laughs> like in it. He's like, oh yeah, I made it super obvious, so only a moron <laughs> wouldn't see that he's a replicant. But then Harrison Ford's like, no, he's not a replicant. Yeah. (laughs) And like Frank Darabont, the director of Shawshank Redemption and Green Mile and all of that, he's like, no, there's no way he could be a replicant. And I think Guillermo del Toro throws his voice in there too and just like a bunch of other like directors and they're like, yes, of course he's a replicant because of this, this, and this. No, of course he isn't because this and this. And if he is, then it completely ruins the purpose of the movie and all of that. So... Yeah. So we'll agree to not have to come up with a conclusion on this one, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we weren't trying to answer the question. Yeah. yeah. It's a cool debate, though. Yeah, I I love any sort of movie where, they're, like, every person kind of sees it differently. Or it's, you know, that's why I love 2001 right. Space Odyssey so much. Because it is so Gosh. ambivalent and it can really mean anything you want it to. Mm-hmm. Especially because Kubrick was saying, you know, oh, there's no specific meaning for it. It's up to everyone's interpretation. And I think that's a brilliant, a sign of a brilliant movie is whenever it's very contested in that sense and people are arguing over what it means. I think it's a sign of an artist that is willing to uh, allow the audience, it's post-object conceptualization where a person views something, has no idea what the artist meant, and then they put some new meaning onto it. That interpretation, then uh, a good artist will come back and say, I'm glad you see that in that. 
and not correct them. No, how you know you're an idiot. That's actually this. You know, they. Mm-hmm. I I really think that uh, there's a maturity that's expressed in that, a comfort that says I, you don't have to get it, you don't even have to like it. The fact that you experienced it, the fact that you uh, watched it and and are thinking about it, you know, that's that's what art's made for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which kind of makes me sad with a lot of modern movies, especially movies and series, because people always want the answers and they're upset whenever a movie ends on a cliffhanger and they're like, oh, what? I can't believe that. And then with the next movie, you always know it's just going to be answered. Right. And that's like the frustrating thing. And it's not even like big existential questions of like, what was the movie about? It was like, oh, did this person die or didn't they? And right. that's that's usually like the biggest question you'll get out of a movie nowadays. And it's mm. like, no, I want these like really deep, last year at Marion Bod sort of questions of like, what was this film about? And like everyone kind of throwing in their opinion and the director and everyone on it just being mm. like, eh, we're not going to tell you or it doesn't matter. or It doesn't matter, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's you that's know. risky to do, it's, and it's and studios hate that. Anybody who's putting money up want to be sh- just guaranteed that that people are going to be buying tickets for it because there is definite answers. There is a happy ending. There is some sort of resolution that allows uh, the people to walk away uh, feeling better about themselves. Or, in the case of early M Night uh, Shyamalan, uh, everyone's going, "Oh my gosh, you got to go see this movie!" And I can't tell you right. anything about it, and you know that. So. Which, I don't know if you knew this, Sned, but the last episode we just released today was about The Last Airbender ah. and Night Shyamalan. So, <laughs> a different, different era of Shyamalan. A, a different, yeah, different type of Shyamalan, yes. And yeah. it, was it even the same person? And that no. should be the discussion. It's in a different category. Yeah. Yeah. Did somebody take over M. Night Shyamalan's body? And... <laughs> oh, man. I truthfully haven't seen that film. So, I, I heard so many stinker comments about it that I just went... I got better things to do with my time, so <laughs> yeah, you do. You you don't need to watch it at all. It was no, you really don't. Even even watching it again for that episode, I was like, do I really need to do this? <laughs> well, it's you're taking one for the art. There you go. <sighs> yeah, that's right. It's True. Hit. True. Yeah. One thing I love about Scott's films too is that he just kind of asks questions in it, and he just creates these strange kinds of worlds and it it really just seems like him processing these things of like oh what would this be like in the future and Mm -hmm. what would this do and this and what is the purpose of man if this exists Mm -hmm. and i think he's a really good existential filmmaker because Mm -hmm. of that and that's why his films connect so much and it doesn't matter if it's you know set 500 years in the future or in you know gladiatorial times there's always questions that he's bringing up in it and even uh his the comedy matchstick men Mm. which a lot of people don't even equate that with Ridley Scott, but it's it's so oh, well yeah. done. And and it really asks some very profound questions about family and, and relationships. Uh, and that's and one of my favorite films with uh, Nick Cage. I'm not a big <laughs> Nick Cage fan, but uh, I think mm. Nick Cage is perfectly cast in that movie. Sam Rockwell, and mm. I forget who the girl is played oh. by, but yeah, good stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well. I love seeing director's obsessions, too, and... Mm. Scott has some very interesting ones. Um, this, well, this might get a little explicit. Not super explicit. But for some reason, he's, like, obsessed with, like, what does sex and sexuality look like in the future? Mm-hmm. And one thing I always remember from the bonus features in Alien was he had this whole scene or, like, just kind of this 
not backstory, but almost background element to it where it's like all of the characters, you know, it's just like casual space sex is what he described it as. And it's he's very much focused on that and even just kind of like the alien mm-hmm. is like a symbol in itself and you know all the different right. elements in Blade Runner as well of well and the special features in that uh, shows some of the deleted scenes of the scene where uh, where uh, Deckard and uh, Rachel in the hallway um, you know actually yeah. I've gotten a lot of criticism even for liking the film from some of my female students mm-hmm. and and I I'm I mean I really try to be careful and to listen and to not shut anybody down. And they have a point. There's a misogynistic sort of treatment of women in Ridley Scott's films. Mm. Um, you know, it. I, I've watched this real carefully, and clearly Rachel pursues Deckard, but she wants answers about her her reality or, or her uh, humanity. Right. Um, Deckard uh, doesn't want to be anywhere near her because he ultimately knows his job is to kill her. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there's this uh, strange sense of. Them working together, she saves his life. Then um, you know he he awakens from his uh, uh, drunken stupor, and she's playing the piano, and her hair is let down. And I mean, it's all the tropes of you know, let's uh, let's pardon the expression, get it on. But but then in the doorway, you know, he's quite manhandling of her and aggressive, and then telling her what to say. Yeah. And then in the uh, deleted scenes, you know, there's a little more, much more explicit uh, Mm -hmm. sexual content. Prometheus, uh, there's a major story point in there where mm. the uh, the uh, the daughter of the uh, oh, I can't think of the guy's name. Um, oh, I know the, the guy Pierce character. Yeah, uh, you know she and the Wayland. captain of the ship. They yeah, Wayland. Yeah, they finally uh, you know right at the kind of the main crisis of the film, uh, they actually uh, run off to the bedroom. And so yeah, clearly mm. he's he's got some kind of predilection. Yeah, and even just kind of, and this, I didn't see this as sexual, but just in the physical conduct of the characters, whenever Roy is confronting Tyrell and, you know, kisses him and then crushes his head, which also reminds me of a scene in Alien Covenant where the two or androids meet each other and they're exact copies of each other and they, like, kiss. And it was just like, wow, that, and, like, I remember in the theater, like, a bunch of people laughing and I was like, that is... (laughs) Whoa! <laughs> like, what is he saying with yeah. this? And yeah. well, you know. it's—I uh, thought of the the uh, Judas betrayed with a kiss mm. sort of idea of betraying yeah. Jesus. Um, I thought, uh, in fact, I, I just—I watched in preparation for today. I want you guys to know that I'm—you know—I'm playing uh, playing the uh, the party line here. Uh, I watched <laughs> Blade Runner: The Final Cut to come into this discussion today. So, uh, as I watched that scene with uh, Batty and and Terrell. Uh, I just, I'm just enamored with the Frankenstein uh, mm-hmm. idea that's mm-hmm. there. The creator meets his creation, and the creator uh, is not able to give his creature what the creature wants. Uh, in the Frankenstein story, of course, it's the 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 creature wants to be loved. The creature mm-hmm. wants to have the acceptance of his his creator. Uh, in this case, it's longevity. I want more life. You know. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's powerful. Yeah. I think there's a yeah, lot it's of... It's like Roy has kind of done his own research because he's like, well, what about this? Have you looked into this? And he's like, we've already tried it. You know, it yeah. didn't work. So it's 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 like he's already done the research and he kind of knows that it's not possible, but he's just pleading to his makers. Like, what you know, what can be done here? Anything. Anything to have a, uh, a couple more years. 
And he also expresses it to Sebastian back at uh, uh, J.F. Sebastian's house where mm. he says, you know, Pris is going to die, uh, appealing to Sebastian's kind of like mm. for for Pris. You know, it's 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 quite tragic. It's quite desperate. Even just like kind of the strange relationship between Roy and Pris where he just like walks in and just starts making out with her yep. and all that. Yeah. And Sebastian, I'm going to make some breakfast. Do you want some breakfast? Yeah. <laughs> walks right between them. Yeah. He's he's a very interesting character, and Roy to me is the most fascinating part of the mm-hmm. film. Uh, his character oh, is so Shakespearean and so mm-hmm. tragic, and mm-hmm. Rutger Hauer, what an actor! Yeah, incredible. This is an amazing performance, and I I, I just felt like he is one of the most empathic villains mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ever put on mm-hmm. screen because you really I I feel more for him than for Deckard. Mm-hmm. Like Deckard almost kind of gets painted as like a worse character than Batty does and in the end you know it's Batty that saves Deckard and mm-hmm. if it were switched mm-hmm. around Deckard would have just killed Batty and yep yeah it would have often it would have been done it would have been a, a shot to the head and it was over mm-hmm. and and it's really one of those strange and marvelous things about this film that although it's a Ridley Scott film that final line that Batty delivers was a Rutger uh line and he he came and said hey I got something let me try this so that amazing uh, little uh, monologue that he did as he's uh, yeah. getting ready to die. Uh, all of this will be, what is, what's All the those one? moments will be lost, lost in time. time. Like, like, like tears, tears and rain. rain. Yes. Time to die. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, how profound is that? Yeah. It's like, that's a pretty good point. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Can we get this guy some more life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All of his yeah. lines in this are just amazing. And every confrontation you have, you're just like, hooked into it especially the scene where he's confronting Terrell mm-hmm. and you know just asking you know I want more life father or whatever version you watch you know and <laughs> so uh, that was going to be one of my trivia questions but since you brought it up uh, the uh, I love the fact that the final cut uses the word father rather than the profanity that starts with F okay <laughs> yeah. and it I mean it fits perfectly phonetically or in terms of the uh, the mouths moving but uh, at some point, that was that was added and probably voiced. Um, obviously, if they had uh, uh, Batty's voice doing it, then they must have considered the possibility of doing that. But it's so much more profound to me to have the creation come to his creator mm. and and give him the moniker "Father." I want more life, Father. Mm-hmm. Oh my right. word! It's just that just again chills i just yeah. i'm thinking that's just so profound and so tragic yeah or even the line whenever he enters and oh i was wondering when you show up and batty enters and says it's not easy to meet your maker yes which is yeah i mean that scene is just amazing and i think one of the good points that this film shows is humans are too fallible to be creators of life like we just can't provide these answers or you know even saying batty saying you know uh, the god of biomechanics and calling him that and it's like oh he still can't give him more life and and yep. there's just kind of this decrepancy I don't know if that's the right word decrepancy to, of mankind that shows that we are not capable of being gods mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. creating something in our own image like you know man created replicants in his own image and all yeah. of that is, and when we do it goes wrong it always goes wrong <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think Riker Howard played him with such a, a child likeness that was really fascinating to watch. Mm. And oh, I'm just now remembering this, but there, 
I don't know if you guys picked up on this, but there's a scene, our very first shot of Roy is in the telephone booth and he's staring off to the side and a, a grin grows on his face and he turns his head and you can see water drip droplets yeah. on his head run down his nose. Yeah. And then we get the exact same shot in reverse uh, right before he kisses Terrell. And I thought that was fascinating. Did you guys pick up on that? Well, actually, the the uh, the trivia on that is that they stole the shot from the Terrell scene and cut it earlier and reversed it. So it was uh, it was uh, the introductory shot. They also had a shot of his hand, his fist before the nail mm-hmm. uh, gets crushed into it, and oh, right. so it's the same that same two shots from later in the film were actually put earlier, uh, and I think. In some ways, I think it was a, uh, a demonstration of Roy's desperation. He was starting to die. He was he was mm-hmm. starting to feel the uh, the biomechanical uh, engine, whatever that the alarm clock was, it was going to go off and yeah. shut him down. Yeah, he was starting to feel that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that shot of him at the final confrontation before he's about to jump across the buildings, where he has his arms crossed and he's holding the dove in one hand and the nail sticking oh, yeah. out of the other, and yeah. like every time I see that, I'm like. This is like maybe one of the most existential things I've ever seen, and I feel like I could stare at it for just yeah. hours and not get everything that it holds in mm-hmm. it. It's just amazing. Like, there's just this essence towards it that I can't really describe in any fashion of just saying that was amazing, and mm-hmm. like, I don't even know why. Yeah, I love I love it, and it's 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 in in some ways messianic, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, it's just it's just fill it's ripe with with uh, interpretive uh, opportunity. And he jumps across and then Deckard is holding on by barely a couple of fingers yeah. and and the timing of that edit is just so beautiful cuz it's it's yeah. it really elongates that split yeah, second of time. It's almost too late. Yeah, yeah, it's almost too late. But the fact that Batty who was his nemesis grabs him and pulls him up and saves his life, sets him down, boom, you know. He he could have he could have ripped his head off. Yeah. <laughs> I love the little smirk that he gives mm-hmm. uh, as he's giving that line. And I've heard people say that because, you know, he's, he gives that line and then he kind of looks at Deckard for a moment and smiles at him. Some people are like, he's he's doing that because he knows or he thinks that Deckard is a replicate and he's like, you don't even know like what you're about to go through. You know, <laughs> it's like you have no idea. And I just, oh, he's just, he, he plays that character with such a playfulness. Yeah. And I just, I love it. It's fascinating. Yeah. I think there was an interview with either Ridley or someone, but just saying, you know, he, of course he acts childlike and like even the final confrontation is kind of like a game where he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a couple seconds and it's my turn. Oh, that was really unsportsmanlike. Yeah. Because he had, you know, he only had four (laughs) years. And so he has like the emotional grasp of like a four year old. And, (laughs) And so that's why he is like so strange or whenever he's at Sebastian's house and he like, pops up with like the weird fake eyes and like his yeah. uh, lip I love that under. moment those yeah. Yeah, googly eyes yeah. and yeah. <laughs> that's the same point where Pris also sticks her hand in the uh, in the boiling uh, oh yeah, yeah water. the water to get the egg the out eggs. of it this whole film is just very I, I feel like it's a a lesson in every aspect mm. of filmmaking like screenwriting cinematography direction sound everything there's just so so much layering to it, especially in the screenplay. Like mm-hmm. all of the lines are just gold, and mm-hmm. especially one of my favorite scenes is the confrontation between Leon and Deckard whenever he's fighting him, and he just kind of gives line after line of "nothing is worse than an itch you can never scratch,", scratch. and mm-hmm. you know, "wake up, time to die," and all of these <laughs> yeah. things. Like, 
Oh my gosh, there's so <laughs> much here. <laughs> and then Terrell gives this wonderful line uh, when he's uh, uh, being confronted by Batty. Terrell basically tells him, "It can't, they can't do what you want." And then Terrell is as though he's proud of his creation. You know, he says, "The light that burns twice as bright burns half as long." And you've burned so very, very brightly, Roy. Oh. And then the, the screenplay says, Batty looks up at Father Terrell. Terrell is swelling with pride. Best of all possible replicants. We're proud of our prodigal son. Glad you've returned. You're quite a prize. And then, of course, <laughs> I've done questionable things, Daddy. <laughs> and here's a few more. things. Yeah. Whenever I watched it again, or like the theatrical cut, I was like, oh, I forgot like how quickly everything happens and how it kind of comes together so fast. Because I remember the first time watching it, I didn't really get it. I watched the director's cut and I was like, okay, because I watched it, Sned, on your recommendation of you saying it's your yeah. favorite movie. And I immediately went out to a store and bought it and I was just like, huh, <laughs> okay. And it was really until like the second time I watched it, where I was like, oh, I get it now. And... So I get some people. So it that, felt very fast to you. Is that what you said? Yeah, it just like flew by for me. I was just so engaged in it. Yeah. That's it. That was not my experience at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, it felt it felt slow, but I liked it. It was a it was a slow burn, and it was mm-hmm. you know giving you that space and time to think. And that's right. one of the reasons I liked it mm-hmm. so much. Just I mean, the scene after Deckard's been in the fight with Leon, and it's just them in the apartment, kind of lingering for a long time. You know, uh, Rachel's watching him clean his wounds. It, that scene just goes on a lot longer than it, it would nowadays, for sure. Mm. I, and I love that moment where he takes the drink out of the shot glass mm. and takes a little drink, and then you know he lets mm. the little backwash come back in there with the blood from his mouth. And, and the, the lighting is just beautiful on that. It's, again, a Cronowitz, uh, amazing cinematography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you need to watch the 4K version, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> you're killing me Riley you're killing me <laughs> one thing that cracked me up too is I think I can't remember if it was in Dangerous Days or not but whenever Scott was um, in pre-production and talking with Philip K. Dick and saying or Philip K. Dick saying you know this is what the story is about it's about you know Deckard you know kind of losing his humanity while he's fighting all these things and Scott's like no 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 I'm not going to do that because I don't want to make an esoteric movie and whenever I saw that I just laughed because I was like I feel like this is one of the most esoteric movies I've ever seen oh man well if if he had made Philip K. Dick's movie it would have been Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and that's that's such a strange vignette into these people's worlds Mm -hmm. you know the whole first couple chapters is just um, uh, the Deckard uh, character going up to the roof of his house and having a discussion with his neighbor about a real horse versus his electric sheep. Um, I just, you know, I, mm-hmm. once again reviewing it, I just thought, this is so just, uh, well, atmospheric's not the right word, esoteric, um, just bizarre. It's just this bizarre yeah, vignette. Bizarre, yeah. 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 Yeah, it is really weird. And I kind of wonder how, how it would translate over to film mm-hmm. and if you would feel maybe more empathy for Deckard's character and just kind of all the stuff that he has to go through. And it, I mean, yeah, there really are very few similarities between the book and the film, but I feel like there's a lot of good essences of the book yeah. that they oh, captured. And yeah. I think that's how you get, do a good adaptation is if you get the essence, the philosophical 
renderings behind it. If you match that, that is so much better than making sure every single scene and every line of dialogue is in the movie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the most important things about this film is that Scott, and I think he first started it with Alien, and the first major example that I can think of for this is Stanley Kubrick's 2001, to bring that up again, was the first time that a director created created a sci-fi movie um, and assumed that the audience was were intellectuals mm. instead of just like it being this pulpy sort of fun adventure sort of thing. He's like, no, I know why people love science fiction. Yes, there's a lot of fun futuristic stuff, but the thing that's so great about sci-fi is it asks all these big questions right. of like every aspect of humanity and how do we deal with things. And it can get away with asking the questions without feeling like it's being some kind of a, a gratuitous political ploy. Um, so even, you know, in a time where we are so polarized as a as a nation and as as a people, sci-fi provides this uh, this avenue by which we can still ask the really deep questions, which, again, Prometheus, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Blade Runner 2049 uh, really took it to another level. I mean, it's it got criticized for being atmospheric. It was way too slow. And I'm going, oh, no, it was delightful. Yeah. Um, and yeah. it, and it really did take the whole idea of humanity and then just further exacerbate the the question: What does it mean to be human? So we're dealing with uh, issues of uh, abortion, dealing with issues of uh, of uh, euthanasia. Um, the uh, the character, uh, the Jared Leto character, uh, creates this this uh, life form and then guts it. You know, and it's just devastating. Um, Anyone who watches that can't come away without being repulsed and feeling like there was something wrong about that. And that, mm-hmm. that is, that's the profound nature of uh, what science fiction affords us because we allow it to happen. We don't turn away, and yet we still have to deal with the reaction to it. Um, I love that. Yeah. I kind of I, I kind of had the same feeling of like after seeing Blade Runner 2049 and people being like, oh, I don't get it, or it didn't do as well in the box office. I'm like, it's just Blade Runner all over again, where, like, (laughs) I feel like years from now, people are going to be like, oh, that was a masterpiece, you know, and I can't believe we didn't recognize it. Yeah, both of these movies, it was underwhelming box office, and it's it's a shame. Mm -hmm. But, of course, the first one was eclipsed by E.T., which came out the same year, so that was... yeah. That was a big reason. Mm -hmm. One of the scenes that grabs me the most, and I didn't even realize it until this... Last time I watched it is, I mean, just the intro shot where, you know, you push into the cityscape and then it cuts to the eye watching it. Uh And to me, that felt very like Gatsby-esque of the billboard of Mm -hmm. the eyes always watching it. And I I just felt like that was a beautiful essence to the film. And it kind of made me realize how much they focus on eyes in the movie. Mm -hmm. That's always like Mm -hmm. a thing or people just talking, you know them going to the eye creator and you know the things i've seen with your eyes and and all of this and i just remember like watching throughout and i was like what is the deal with eyes what is the deal with eyes yeah. and then it's kind of orwellian or orwellian yeah and then at the end mm-hmm. whenever you know batty does his last look up towards deckard and i was like it's the window to the soul so you know i feel like that's like one of the biggest questions of are these replicants should we consider them human like and do they have souls and do they have, you know, all of this? And it, 
also reminds me of the Iron Giant of that scene whenever Hogarth is laying with the Iron Giant and you know he's like the bodies die but souls don't die and like kind of the questioning of like does the Iron Giant have a soul and that is just one of the deepest hardest hitting elements of this film for me of like does Roy Batty have a soul you know (laughs) it seems like he's more soulful than Deckard or like any of the other humans you see and he appreciates life so much Mm -hmm. more and while everyone else is just kind of throwing it away or just it's like oh this is just too miserable and Batty was like created to do like these slave-like actions and yet he has such a beautiful view of life and wants more of it yep Mm -hmm. yep I agree. So this uh, the screenplay again is in, insightful in some ways because uh, that ending line from Batty: "I've seen things, seen things you little people wouldn't believe." Um, attack ships off on fire off of the shoulder of Orion, bright as magnesium. I rode on the back decks of a blinker and watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. That's not exactly the way it is in the movie, but all those moments will be gone, and then it's not in the screenplay like tears in the rain time to die and so then it says in the screenplay batty holds deckard's eyes like a hypnotist Mm. and Mm. there is this idea that um that he deckard didn't know how to answer the questions deckard was wait a minute i'm pursuing this guy to kill him and he was pursuing me i think to to rip my head off (laughs) nearly rip my fingers off but you know all that process and then at the end, he saves him. And then at the end, he watches him die. And they almost have this devotional campfire talk and, and invitation to you know, come to the altar. And, 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 then, and then he just watches this happen. And the dove lets go, which is such a spiritual uh, allusion to the soul leaving the body. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just really powerful. And sad. I mean, I think, I, I think the, and I have been become very emotional as a result of watching that transaction occur there. Um, maybe not to yeah. tears. Um, there are other films that make me cry uh, every time I watch them. But I just, I really have a, I have a sense of our mortality, I think. Um, having been with several of my, my uh, relatives, uh, grand, grandmothers in particular, who uh, passed, you know, and hold their hand as they go, it's just a really profound thing to watch somebody die. I think he captured that. Yeah, I really feel for Roy. I mean, I I was like, man, why can't he just provides a good case for his for his story, and it's you just really want you want to see more on a, a little bit, and I think he provides a good case for himself. And that's why I mean, it's so good, or just Deckard's story is so good because you can tell before this, it's just been a job where he goes out, shoots something, collects his bounty, and that's it. And this is the first time where. He's really had to question, you know, what is my purpose? Am I a replicant? And he has, like, all of these things coming in, which you can tell he's, like, not prepared for. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's why his character's kind of, like, glossy-eyed throughout most of the film is because he's dealing with these questions that he's never had to deal with before and things that are striking him to his core and kind of ripping him up internally. And then, you know, the, the, the end of the movie, as the final cut ends it, is him racing back to his apartment and coming into the apartment and looking for Rachel and this sense of almost desperation. Did somebody else come in and kill her? You know, is she gone? He realizes she's under the covers. And when he pulls the covers back and sees, no, she's just sleeping, there's a sense of relief. And then, of course, the two of them become fugitives and 
and you know the way that the final cut ends we don't know where they went and what they did and mm-hmm. frankly it doesn't matter <laughs> <laughs> yeah right they go to las vegas <laughs> well we know that now <laughs> well, what do you think of 2049 as like a sequel to it how do you think it holds up or um, cuz after watching blade runner you don't really get the feeling of oh this needs a follow up uh, no. It ends very succinctly, and yet I feel like 2049 fits in really well with it. I I was actually really pleased with 2049. I highly anticipated it. I was probably making some people sick uh, with all of the uh, the trailers, and I, I put a lot of my Facebook, uh, um, whatever the banner thing is there on <laughs> Facebook, my, my uh, mm-hmm. uh, Facebook page had a lot of screen captures. I agree with you. I think that the, the Blade Runner... Uh, uh, 1982, the final cut uh, as the version that we like to go to. I agree that 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 ended and could have been the final. That could have been it. Never revisit it. And then we come back to it, and appropriately, Harrison Ford has aged the right amount, and they didn't try to make Harrison Ford be Indiana Jones again, which I think is one of the the most atrocious money grabs that I've ever heard and seen. <laughs> they they put him in the right place. And then they had a development of the society in a way that made logical sense. That replicants were outlawed and then there was the uh, the new technology that came forth that allowed them to do something that was even better but more controllable. Uh, why can't I think of the name of the Jared Leto character? Wallace. Wallace, thank you. Yeah. Yep. So... You know, they, I think that the world had advanced in the 30 years that it transpired, and I just it felt like it was a good next uh, step, next question. The uh, the Blade Runner in this case was a replicant himself who had mm-hmm. agency and who also had a an acute heightened sense of wanting to have a regular life. He wanted to just be a person, but even when he walks into his apartment block, there people are hurling uh, insults at him and. Really apropos for our racial tensions, uh, anything mm-hmm. anyone different is is shunned, and um, I loved it. I thought mm-hmm. uh, Denny uh, Villeneuve did a f- fantastic job of paying homage to Ridley's uh, first work, and uh, then taking it to the next level. I think the Hans Zimmer mm-hmm. uh, track that I think yeah. took the Johansson work and then uh, extrapolated it was a great homage to Vangelis. Um, Mm -hmm. It just, it was right. And of course then Deacon's getting the opportunity Mm. to, to, to image it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) About time for him to get (laughs) Oscar recognition there. Yeah. Yeah. I I loved 2049. Mm -hmm. You you liked it too, Connor, I loved it. I thought it was amazing. And I was just mesmerized by it. Like the week after I saw it in theaters, I was just like, Everywhere it went, it just felt so dramatic. Like I always had the the music like playing over my head, and just saw everything so stylized. And I was like, I want, I want that atmosphere. I want that world again. And it was just so enthralling. And I loved the evolution of the world as well. Some people had the blue funk after Avatar, and we all had the orange funk after uh, Blade Runner forty twenty nine. That's great. Yeah, Ryan Gosling's he's amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm glad that he was able to shake. You know, because he was in the note, notebook, and mm. so he kind of had that stigma on him. But What's wrong with that movie? Really... <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen it, I'll say that. All so right, I won't, right. you know, I can't judge, I guess. But yeah, he allowed himself not to be typecast. Yeah, he's a very good dramatic actor. He is, yeah. I think. Uh, one thing I thought was really 
interesting about the film that stuck with me, but I feel like glossed over for most people is something that seemed very real of it wasn't an issue of having another world war that war that desolated everything, but that everything electronic got shut down and everything was lost. And I was like, yeah, that, I mean, makes sense why the world has changed so much and why it's not just the same and Mm -hmm. um, why everything is different, why Terrell got shut down and all of that is like that almost seems for, at least for America would be a worse fate of like having everything digital just lost. And that's more of a thing of like, Oh, how would we come back after that? Yeah, yeah, what what would it look like? Um, the, the I think that the uh, the backstory was also set up very nicely. They did a good PR job of giving us the little little film vignettes that showed us some parts of the story, uh, including the idea that there was a domestic terrorist group that came and and essentially uh, detonated a, a device that killed the uh, the digital records and and that then of course sets up having only partial records of what happened. Back in the early days, and so the the uh, uh, Ryan Gosling's character is trying to find the uh, the answers from something in the past, and not really being able to see a full picture of it. It was cool too because a lot of the unused or alternate material for the screen original screenplay of Blade Runner was integrated into the film, like right. having oh, it yeah. start off with Kay's character coming in to the farm, and they even got it down to like. The soup boiling right, in a pot, exactly. like that was the original start to Blade Runner, was him walking in, killing him, and walking out. Yeah, I love how they use that. And it's written by the same guy. Yeah, Hampton Fancher. Uh, Fancher. So, yeah. you know, not to sell books on this podcast, but uh, if, you, if you're if <laughs> listening, you listening and want some more information, Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner by Paul Salmon is a great uh, look at the uh, all of the stuff leading into the original uh, Blade Runner. And in particular, the whole opening of the... The book is about the screenplay and the process that went through. They went through to try to get there, because Hampton Fancher was involved, uh, but there was uh, several other people that were brought in. David Peoples, uh, those two guys are credited with the screenplay, but Ridley and his team rewrote it. There was a, just a ton of back and forth that were going on, and some hurt feelings and some surprises. <laughs> and in the end, everyone was happy to be a part of the a part of the show, but. Um, it's. I think it's really cool that that Fancher got another opportunity and was able to uh, to come back around for twenty forty nine. Right, and we'll make sure to put the link to that book on Amazon or something in the show yeah, notes so you can yeah. look it up and find all that good stuff. But yeah, it's there's the history behind this is so fascinating, and one of the the parts of the Dangerous Days documentary on it that struck me was it seemed like everyone on the set whether cast or crew, except for Harrison Ford, realized that this was going to be more than just a movie. And, like, from the graphic designers of putting in all these, like, little details of Rutger Hauer seeing the depth to the characters and just all of these little things, everyone was so into it, except for Ford, who was just like, oh, yeah, it's just another movie I'm doing. And, and I mean, he I was also miserable. I, mean, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I 100% agree with that. I think Harrison Ford comes off differently than a lot of actors do. I think he's very much a professional and he 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 understands the job of an actor and he he respects the script and he respects the character and the story. He doesn't really participate in the whole fan service mm. thing very much. He's very much a transactional, you know, this is it's like this is a business. 
I have customers, like I, I provide this service and then we move on with our lives, you know? He's just very professional about it in that way. And I don't, I don't think he's one to get swept up in the in the legacy of it and the cultural phenomenon that it was. Right, but not even, not even pertaining to that because I think he did give his all for his performance and that he did a good job, but just the mindset of everyone else in it was just saying like, this is going to be so much bigger than we could realize and kind of putting in all of this effort to make it as good as they possibly could and just seeing the future potential of it. I, I feel like all of them except for Ford saw that. So I'm showing uh, uh, a, uh, a picture here. Connor is able to see this. It's uh, the subtitle. Well, it's actually Ridley with uh, uh, Harrison Ford by the uh, by the necktie pulling him up. And it says, uh, Ridley rehearses a fight with Harrison Ford, a conflict that is mirrored in real life on the set. Um, I think that the night shoots uh, at the end of this production were grueling. And um, I think, yeah, I think Ford was ready to be done. So to be called back to do the noir voiceovers, you know, 30 years later, obviously uh, Harrison Ford is more than happy to uh, come and do a press junket to talk about a new yep. film because that's, obviously it's a gig for him. But um, And I, I like Harrison Ford as an actor in some of the stuff he's done. And mm-hmm. then other things I'm just like, he just mumbles through his lines and, I, <laughs> and I'm not sure that it's it's brilliant. Um this is the Harrison Ford I like in Blade Runner. This is this is a Harrison Ford that uh, I think is uh, is worth uh, saying a, he's a good actor and he does a great job. Mm-hmm. This and Witness, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Witness is another yeah. great one. Yeah, this one's yeah, it's not your standard hero portrayal. He's very reactive in this, reacting to the other characters. He does that a lot. Uh, yeah, he's very very much an observer. Of course, that plays into his detective roles too, but. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch him mm-hmm. do his detective work. Yeah, he acts like a main character who doesn't want to be a main character. I mean, because he, he's not your typical hero. He gets beat up and thrown around. He, like, has to rely on everyone else. And, I mean, the main thing that he's good at is just being a detective and figuring out where it is. He's not supposed to be an action star kind of guy. Like, he can shoot, but in a fist fight, he's not good. Yeah. He's not Han Solo. No, he's not Han Solo. <laughs> Or indie. Yeah. Should we talk about the Vangelis score a little bit? Sure. Or? Sure. The first time I watched it, I actually wasn't a huge fan of it. Um, oh, really? I know. I know. I I'm just, asking Connor to leave my office now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know what it was. I think I was just kind of expecting something else. I don't know. Maybe it was just like because I didn't have good speakers or something, and so it kind of like blended in too much. I was watching on this crappy little TV that I got for college and so maybe that was part of it but i mean i've come to love it and it's probably one of my favorite scores now and i think more than anything it just provides a soundscape for the film more than like there are themes in it but i feel like it just provides the atmosphere more so than the score and the the biggest example to me of that is whenever deckard kills zora and to me that's just one of the most entrancing scenes i've ever seen where there's just like the slow synth sounds as she's like breaking through the glass and all the neon is flashing over her like I just can't look away right yeah yeah I think well Vangelis uh, is an acquired taste um, I followed the artist since I was a uh, a young buck in the 70s so um, <laughs> I was familiar with Vangelis's early work and as a composer he also plays everything so he he sits among a bank of synthesizers and drums 
timpanis and percussion. And so just give him a multi-track recorder and he will layer this stuff at infinitum ad nauseum on his own. So he's quite the one-man band, literally, when it comes to producing this stuff, which is the model now for some of the greats that uh, we we recognize today, the Hans Zimmer and, and those cats. They're, they're doing the same thing. Home studio, lots of synthesizers, uh, mm-hmm. able to really work themselves around uh, and generate uh, soundscapes. Of course, digital sampling technology helps that. But it's the Vangelis synth sound, that that, mm-hmm. that round analog sort of synth sound that, that he uh, generates that I think makes Blade Runner so powerful. And, and I thought it was, it was really important that that carry over into the 2049 uh, soundtrack, which I think happened. I think it, it was a great homage. Yeah. And I was actually curious how they were going to follow that up in, in 2049. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I think they did great. I mean, they kind of added their own spin on it. But, yes, they still had those, the iconic, you know, that bass drum hit. Mm-hmm. Right. With silence, you know. Uh, th- those are great scenes. But, yeah, no, I thought they did great tribute and even expounded on, on some of the themes. Yeah. I thought it was great. I mm. think if you look at great film composers like Ennio Morricone mm. or uh, uh, John uh, Williams, uh, yeah, the uh, John Williams, and then the uh, who's the guy that uh, Elmer Bernstein, mm. um, the uh, the Magnificent Seven, bump bump bottom, you know those those kind of great movie soundtracks. Vangelis isn't in the same league. Um, mm-hmm. He's not a composer like that. He is a uh, he's a collaborator. He takes a mood and a vibe, and he generates something that becomes really atmospheric, uh, almost like an ambient track. There are some good melodic themes in there, but you know, I think of a film like Cinema Paradiso, which we're screening mm-hmm. this uh, this coming week for our Intro to Cinema class. Uh, that that's just so uh, enigmatic in terms of the the melody that exists on that. And yeah, you can think of the love theme from uh, Blade Runner. You can kind mm-hmm. of maybe whistle that on a, on a happy day, but it doesn't quite have the same level of uh, hook and, you know. So, yeah, it's just it's a different yeah. thing. Yeah, he doesn't mm-hmm. focus on creating, like, leitmotifs or anything right. like that. It's just, it's more of the world than the character. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's very different because, you know, in music history, music was very, it was stuff that was repeated often so that you could, like hum it back to yourself or whistle it, and it's like the they would it was specifically structured that way because that's the only way it could be repeated is if you remembered it, and so that was definitely not uh, Vangelis's how he approached it. It's like the music was for that specific moment, and it's not something that was meant to be reproduced after really. So I have a question for the both of you, and Sned, I think I know your answer to this. Would you adapt this differently, or what would you do differently? to bring it from page to screen? Oh, wow. So you think you know my answer. Well, tell me what I should say, because I'm not sure I know my answer. <laughs> I thought you'd just say no, because it's great the way it is. Yeah, it I mean, I, different. I'm, I'm comfortable with it being different. I'm comfortable with the, uh, the catalyst for the, uh, the film being this novel, this short, uh, shorter novel. I, I wouldn't want to go back and try to be a... To, to try to recreate something that, that doesn't need to be recreated. I've done a little bit of uh, extended study on film remakes um, and mainly just looking at films that have been made based on classic literature. So like the Frankenstein films or the Great Gatsby or uh, some mm-hmm. of those. And 
what I, my purpose in that was to look at did the subsequent remake better represent the original literature and the author's intent in the original literature. Well, clearly, Blade Runner by itself uh, is is worth talking about. That's why we're spending the time tonight talking about that. But uh, twenty forty nine is not a remake. It's a sequel. It's mm-hmm. a it's a continuation, right. and rightly so. I think I would have been uh, much more upset if they had tried to go back and and uh, made Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, mm. you know, the real Blade Runner story. You know, that just would have been a <laughs> money grab again. Um, so, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very comfortable with it the way it is. Would I have yeah. wanted to include some of the nuance of the Deckard character from uh, of Sheep? Uh, maybe. Maybe, but yeah. I, I, think, I, I think it was distilled in such a way that it got to the... It, it maintained the, the deep philosophical and theological questions without necessarily having all the nuance, uh, every piece of the story exactly the way it needed to be. It's still asking the very profound questions. Yeah, I think, I think they're essentially telling different stories. I mean, they're not telling the same stories. And I absolutely love the Blade Runner that we got. And it's almost like you could have three or four different movies coming out of that novel, you know? And it's, you know, maybe we could have one that focused more on the whole Mercerism concept mm-hmm. or the mm-hmm. empathy box or the, the mood organ, which are really fascinating things to think about. It's like, oh, that would have been cool to see an interpretation of that. Uh, and so it's like, I feel like we could have different interpretations of, of do Android's dream of electric sheep. And it's fun to think about what those might be, but you know, what would I change about Blade Runner as we got? I don't know. I don't know what I would change about it. I think the changes they made were in service of the story they were telling, which I think is, one you know, the more important things. And we've talked about that before on this podcast, about uh, as long as it's for the betterment of the story that is being told, and it doesn't derail, um, derail the story, I guess. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy with the Blade Runner we got. I don't know if I would change things specifically, but it would be cool to see some of those other aspects in the book, maybe in a different adaptation or, or something. I don't know. Right. But, uh, yeah, no, I was over, overall, I thought it was mm-hmm. a good adaptation. Yeah, which I, I, I love it too. But, uh, I mean, my favorite item in the book and the thing that fascinated me the most was the whole mood organ Uh i thought that was just an incredible idea and i would have loved to kind of see i feel like it maybe would have enhanced deckard's character a bit more or maybe not enhanced but showed a different side towards like the moral or not moral uh, emotional decomposition of Uh humanity and how we've become or we've come to rely so much on technology that it's literally the source of emotion uh-huh. at that point. And I think so that's a fascinating... So would you put his wife back in it too? I don't think I'd put his wife back in, but I think maybe because... he would have like this little like box on his side and then like uh-huh. whenever there's like a scene with Rachel, like type something in and then just... And then there's like the romantic feeling or I don't hmm. I don't know, like something along those lines. And as I'm kind of talking about it, it I almost feel like the movie Her is an adaptation of that, in a sense, where the main character of Theodore, he doesn't really yep. have emotions until he gets, you know, he falls in love with his uh, OS. And that in, in a way, she's kind of his mood organ because yeah. that's where all of his, you know, emotions come from. And I think that's why it's so compelling, not because he falls in love with um, a quote unquote robot, but 
because his emotion is derived from machines and technology instead of humanity and kind of lacks empathy in that sense. There's also a couple of uh, other TV series that have picked up themes uh, similar. So Black Mirror has had several episodes that have had some uh, – um, they've skirted around this idea. And then there's the Philip K. Dick uh, Dreams uh, series that's mm-hmm. on Netflix or is it on Electric Amazon? Dreams. Uh, yeah. On Amazon, yeah. It's on Electric Am- yeah. Uh, yeah, the Electric Dreams thing. Um, again, there's lots of room for Philip K. Dick ideas to be uh, to emerge. Um, I have the exegesis of Philip K. Dick, which is this amazingly thick book that is the uh, transcribed from his handwritten notes. All of the just strange uh, rabbit trails that that Philip K. Dick would go on <laughs> in his research and and ruminations. Uh, uh, it's just it's really fascinating to look through it. There's a ton of opportunity and material in that guy's uh, the output of that guy's brain. Yeah, back, back to the mood organ. It's in, in the book. It's interesting because his wife Aran is like constantly connected to that thing, mm-hmm. and she's purposefully dialing in. That's kind of the terminology they use, like dial in your emotion. Yeah, and she dials dials in to be sad and yeah, to despair. Yeah, I want to purposefully I wanna, three hours of despair. Yeah. Right. Like, why would she purposefully choose to do that? You know, mm-hmm. I thought that was a fascinating thing. It's like, what is he trying to say there? Yeah. But it's like, there are reasons to be sad. Like, yeah, right. I don't know. There's lots of areas you could go there. Well, like, but... I think that's a very human thing. There's definitely been points where I'm going to be completely honest about this, where I'm just like, I just want to cry right now so I can feel a strong emotion, you know? And so I'll, I'll be driving yeah. and like, purposely put on like six really sad songs and and just get me going because it's like afterwards i'm like oh okay i'm human you know or <laughs> not yeah. that's not exact train of thought but just wanting to feel things i feel is a very natural human want wanting mm-hmm. to feel love wanting to feel like anger sometimes mm-hmm. and i think that to me is the most interesting point of the book. Well, and the, and the point of the uh, the story is that they are almost so uh, seared in their conscience and emotions that they can't feel that without having some sort of artificial influence mm, to, to yeah. allow them to do it. So it's it's really a sad commentary on existence and, and who they are or aren't, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Should we get to the trivia? Well. Gosh, this was really hard to do because I knew that Connor was like diving headfirst into this world mm. and was there was, was going to be hard for me features, baby. <laughs> to stump him, yeah, but uh, we'll see. And the challenge, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'll start off. So the novel was written in 1968, um, and when he wrote the book, Philip K. Dick, he he speculated about what the film adaptation would be like, mm. and he had actually had an actor in mind to play Rick Deckard. And do you know who that was? That wasn't Dustin Hoffman, was it? Mm-mm. Uh, I think I know. I do have... I think I know. I do have multiple choice if you want No, 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 that, no, no. I think but... I know. I think I know. Uh, go okay. for it, Smitty. Can I, can I answer your question for you? Was it Robert Mitchum? Uh, no, it was not. Oh, oh that's... <laughs> yeah, because Scott wanted Robert Mitchum to play him. That's right. Okay. So that would have been a crazy choice. He, he scares me. Yeah. Um, Let me know if you want the multiple choice. I have it, mm. but if you want to try and okay, guess it. Mm. Oh, so shoot. 1968. So who would have been? Mm-hmm. It wasn't Brando, was it? Nope. Gene Hackman. Nope. Okay, let's go to the multiple choice. <laughs> okay, so our options are A. Gregory Peck, B. 
B, Robert Redford, C, Clint Eastwood, or D, Steve McQueen? Hmm. And at in 1968, so it would have been know. in that period, Gregory Peck, mm-hmm. right. Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, and who was the fourth one? Uh, Robert, Robert Redford. Redford. Robert Redford. I don't think it's Redford. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's... I don't think it's Clint Eastwood. All right, so I'll give you... You can guess once, and then if oh, I said you, you lose. I lose. I don't, I'm trying to think of like what you did, like To Kill a Mockingbird come out and all that. Mm. I, I think I'm going to say Gregory Peck. That is correct. Yes! yes! Gregory Peck. All right. Good. good job. I thought that was kind of strange, though, because 68, Gregory Peck was not young no. at that point. So, but I don't think he's I mean, supposed. Deckard, I don't feel, is supposed to be a young character. He's supposed to be a well-lived. Well, yeah. No, but when he did To Kill a Mockingbird, that was nineteen sixty-two. Sixty-two. Okay. And he was decently. He was in his late forties, maybe. Yeah. Maybe I'm off on that. I mean, so is but, Ford was in his early forties playing Deckard. Even so, I just I thought that was a strange pick. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that's who he wanted. Wow. Of course. Interesting. Uh, in the 80s, that was it was too late at that point. Right. <laughs> Steve actually answered this question earlier. Oh, but I don't, no, I don't know if you remember, Connor. Oh, no. Um, no, it's all good. So in the novel, like the first part of the book is Rick having a conversation with his neighbor about one of his animals. And what was the animal? That was a horse, right? That's right. Yeah. Very good. Sorry, I, I spoiler good. there. <laughs> <laughs> no. This was such a hard one because I was like, I don't know how deep we're diving in. Right. You know? Into the oh, lore. Goodness. Now, I'll be curious if Steve knows this one, but, uh, you know, so the Vangelis did the score. He had lots of different instruments, but what was the uh, main instrument he used to create the soundscape? So you're, like, asking the the brand of the model. synthesizer? Brand oh, my model, gosh. Yeah. Well, um, I had, you want Connor to try <laughs> I first? I a real hard one in here. <laughs> um, uh... <laughs> I remember hearing about this. And, and I have multiple choice. Seeing some, him talk about it. He's got multiple choice, so okay. we should probably take the... Yeah, I'm going to take the multiple choice. <laughs> but but, but I'm going to write down, just to prove that I have some... some okay. <laughs> here, if I can find a pen. Okay, so your options are... A, the Fairlight CMI. Ooh. B, the Clavia Nord Lead. Mm. Or this... C, Yamaha CS80, or D, Roland JD800. I don't know why I'm thinking Nord. I, this is not my answer. I, I, okay. I feel like I heard him talk about the Nord. Yeah, so this was, was about 200 pounds. Okay. It was a polyphonic synthesizer. Synthesizer. I should re- I should know this, Riley, but I'm truthfully I am stumped yeah. <laughs> because the one I the one I think I wrote ARP and Moog like a mini Moog mm-hmm. and an ARP. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Those are probably things that were in his his uh, set arsenal there. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, he could have used it, but there was definitely one that he primarily used. I'm gonna uh, say the Yamaha. That's correct. Yes! Very good. <laughs> oh, nice. Very good. Yeah, the Yamaha CS80. So that was it was made in the late seventies, uh, but it was not very successful. It was really expensive, but it was very Vangelis. He like lived and died by that because it was pressure sensitive, right? Okay. And it had it had like an eight voice. Polyphonic. It contained eight voices yeah. within it, mm-hmm. so it was. Uh, he he admired it highly. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, fun fact. Very cool. Okay, one. so I think you'll do well at this. Okay, I hope. I so. was. I should have probably come up with a back a backup challenge, but can you name uh, all seven versions of Blade Runner and then a significant difference, a major significant difference within each of the versions? The work print, which that was kind of like the rough of a lot of the footage, not not fully figured out, and and it didn't have uh, the uh, the ending last two ending tracks from Vangelis. It had some right. other music in it, like a temp track, and a really weird dripping sort of title sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with uh, the red fluid right. coming in. Right. Yeah. Then there's the U.S. theatrical, which has, of course, the. Um, the voiceover towards it and less violent um, mm-hmm. and just kind of... Yeah, three of these versions were all in 1982. Right. And the happy ending. And the happy ending, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, Batty says the F word instead of father. And then there's the international theatrical version, which, like we said, you know, has more of the gory scenes, the blood pouring out of uh, Terrell's eyes and all of that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Then so that's three. Then the director's cut. You're missing one. Oh, actually. missing there's, one in between. There's one still from 1982. Oh, really? It was only shown once. Oh, oh yeah, the original one, the like four hour version, right? That was no. Most people don't consider that one of the. All of these really? versions were shown either in theaters oh, or in to theaters. a test. But if you want to move past that one, yeah. Can, if you want to, yeah, skip I'll, it I'll, I'll go on. So there's the director's yeah. cut. Um, which doesn't have the voiceover, includes some of the other scenes. The final cut, of course, which is the definitive Ridley Scott version, which has, you know, some color correction on it, the digitally remapped um, scenes of Zora's death. I'm looking at the book. Oh. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I am am cheating because you got me stumped on the one that you said he missed. The 82 one. I know that's the one I'm trying to think of because I would have thought that that would have been the the original screening that they did with the producers. So I'll help you out. It was was screened at a specific place, a specific city, a sneak preview version. Was it in L.A.? No. No, about uh, a few few miles south of L.A. Oh, and I'm looking at it and going, that's totally unfair, Riley. I'm calling you on this. <laughs> Why? Why? Hey, Is it just I, the I same be, thing? It's the, like, the San Diego sneak preview. Oh. <laughs> Not available on tape or laser disc. It was a sneak preview shown in May of 1982. It was quite close in overall content to the final theatrical release of the film. However, three extra shots were seen in this version that were not in the work print or any other version. Right. Two of these exactly. can be referenced against the director's cut laser disc. <laughs> yeah. Oh, now see, now earlier today I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do a YouTube or a uh, um, what's it called? eBay search to see if I could find some laser discs of Ooh. this thing. I, they, oh, I'd man. probably have to pay for you know, uh, give up an arm and a leg and yeah, a couple of kidneys wazoo, or yeah. one kidney. But we have a laser right. disc player here at, at uh, JBU, so I'm oh, thinking, really? wouldn't it be fun to have a Blade Runner laser disc? Oh, yes. that would be That'd cool. That would be amazing. Come the Criterion laser disc. I'll work on that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, get that done. Yeah, so there was, yeah, the scene, uh, it shows Batty making a telephone call to see if Chu is there. Uh, right. scene, And then it shows Deckard reloading his weapon after firing, which is mm. just a really small thing. It's like, why yeah. did they... You know, do that. Yeah, and that one does show Deckard and Rachel uh, riding off together. And there's one more that I'm missing, right? Is that yes? Is that before the director's cut? That was before the director's cut. Yes. 
I feel like there was like some sort of re-release in 85 or 87. Split the difference. 86. Okay. I don't know what the official name for that one is. Was that it's just the, the re-release? Yeah, or? there's not really a specific name for it, but and it wasn't shown in theaters, but it was shown somewhere else. Right. And I'm totally cheating because I see it in the book. <laughs> it was screened uh, somewhere else. That's the key. See, that's I have the, to that's split the hairs. Clue. Somewhere I have to else. split hairs. Yeah, let me grab my, grab my remote control. Let's see what's going on here. <sighs> all right. What do you think? What channel do you think it's on? Oh, yeah, the TV edit that had all the the different censorship right. in it. Yes. Right. But it was interesting because they, they before they showed it, they had people introduce it, and they were ex- explaining the plot of the movie, and they're, like, explaining that Deckard was not a replicant. So they were kind of priming them in a, in a strange way. And at a, the, the opening crawl or scrawl was narrated by somebody, uh, and it was not Harrison Ford. So I thought that was really interesting, especially the fact that they they said that Deckard wasn't a replicant. Right. But. Yeah. One of my favorite little trivia facts about Blade Runner is for the creating of the city and all that, all of those scenes that they just used lots of leftover um, props and stuff. So one of the buildings is like a repurposed Millennium Falcon and part of the LAPD building right. is the spaceship from Close Encounters of the Third yep. Kind. And one of the deleted scenes yep. of um, Deckard going and visiting, um, what was the the guy who interrogates Leon in the beginning? That Vi- was Holder. Holder. Oh, Dave Holden. Dave Holden, Holden yeah. yes. Holden. Visiting yep. him in um, the hospital and like how there was a lot of like alien yeah. props in that and yeah. just all those sorts of things. I thought that yeah, was fascinating. Yeah, well, that's the challenge. You got it. Uh, does anybody else have any other trivia they want to quiz? <laughs> the use of Frank Lloyd Wright designs in uh, Deckard's apartment, like all of the mm-hmm. geometric that's shapes right. in there, which is really cool. That's right. There's also a very funny um, production design thing where they uh, they basically put the pillars uh, upside down when they oh, built yeah. them in Terrell's uh, office. And so Ridley, Ridley comes in and, you know, has to have them rebuild the whole thing. But, you know, the, it's kind of a spinal tap moment where they drew it on a napkin and, you know, it, and 18 inches rather than 18 feet. So. <laughs> yep. Stonehenge. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that, yeah. Well, I Riley, I just have to commend you. You are you have nerded out much more than I ever have on Blade Runner. Oh, really? Now, I know you were referencing your notes, and I was cheating looking at the book to get my uh, references on the different versions, but um, mm-hmm. I totally uh, have to say that uh, you get the nerd award for uh, being much right. much nerdier than me. Bravo. All right. I'm Bravo. proud to take that. Well, some claim – so you mentioned a four-hour cut, and that technically was – Shown to like studio execs, yes. But people don't really consider that a no because it's not available anywhere. Right. But I would yeah, have loved to see that. Out. That would be crazy. Mm-hmm. Which was also the same thing happened for twenty forty nine, where they the original cut of that was like also four hours long, and they're considering like splitting it up into two movies. And yeah, I would love to see a longer Blade Runner. I think that'd be that would be cool. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, does that wrap us up? I think so. I, wanna... I don't know. Yeah. I mean. Sned will definitely have to bring you back on for a Terry Gilliam film. I would love to talk to if, Yeah, or... if we could do Terry Gilliam, that would be awesome. I'm also just a little bit uh, eccentric in some areas uh, uh, re- regarding like Swedish films. So mm. I love uh, Bergman. Mm. I'd love to cover um, Bergman. Bergman would be fun to talk about Seven Seal or mm. Wild Strawberries is one that I'm, um, I'm particularly uh, uh, fascinated by. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, you guys are doing a great job. Um, part of what my 
my greatest joy is to see my uh, students uh, pursue, um, you know, the, what they're passionate about. And, and if I had any role in any part in fa- helping to facilitate your interest in that, that's great. Riley, we just had that one class together, and <laughs> right. Connor got his butt kicked a lot in uh, dailies and stuff when he was making his <laughs> films. But uh, yeah. to know you guys are passionate enough about this to take your spare time and to nerd out on films <laughs> and actually challenge each other to go as deep as possible yeah. uh, is wonderful. So I look forward to hearing you guys in the future on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for coming. Yeah, it was it was a fun. fun Actually, episode. you came to my place. Right. Well, you know, we're well, in, we're in my office, so yeah. technically, I guess, <laughs> podcast is out there somewhere, right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's right. in some out other in space. Should I tease uh, what next week's episode is? Yes. Yeah, tease away. Yeah, we are covering tease the tease DreamWorks animated film How to Train Your Dragon. Keep an eye out for that. Read the book beforehand it's a pretty quick read, read all, it's a all book. nine books right uh, there's all, like 12, 12 i think 10, yeah something 12, around yeah. there yeah okay. read them all no you don't have to <laughs> that's right all righty so what what version how should we end this because we'll we'll end this and then we'll mm. do another ending and then maybe we'll do a couple more endings of this yeah episode, yeah so we can have throw in some harrison versions. ford uh voiceover yeah. some dialogue well, we got to say thank you to John Skinner yep. for the use of the graphic, to Luke Hogan and Caden Reed for the theme song and outro that they've gifted us with. Yeah. What has this been, Riley? This has been Film Analysis for a Modern Audience. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>